As part of Truth 30's continued reporting on policing in the United States of America, I'm joined today by two former leaders in law enforcement. Nicholas Sensley was a former chief of police with 24 years on the force, volunteer development and transitioning and developing nations worldwide. In June of 2020, Chief Sensley launched the Institute for American Policing Reform to a national outcry for police reform in the United States following the murder of George Floyd. Before launching the Institute and concurrent with his active police service, in 2001, Chief Sensley formed Cross-Section Solutions, LLC, as an international consortium of experts who build and facilitate strategic partnerships among governments and NGOs for the benefit of development of our communities throughout the world. Chief Sensley earned a Bachelor of Science in Organizational Management from Patton University, a Master's of Business Administration from Golden Gate University, and is currently a PhD candidate in International Business Management at the International School of Management in Paris. My other guest today is Eric Litchfield, a former police captain with the Santa Rosa Police Department and 28 years of service as a peace officer and leader. Eric has managed numerous divisions during his tenure that include patrol, traffic, tactical teams, the incident management teams, detectives, training, and professional standards and education. Captain Litchfield has extensive experience in training in personal investigations, police development, training development and recruitment, crowd control tactics, union contracts, and managing large-scale critical incidents. He holds a BA in sociology from Sonoma State University and is a graduate of the Peace Officer Standards and Training of the Command College Strategic Foresight Program. Eric is now the Vice President of Education and Standards for the Institute of American Policing Reform. During our chat, we talked about the use of special response teams, or CRTs as they are known in policing, their origin, purpose, and why these teams need more budget, oversight, and leadership if they are to continue. We discussed the lunacy of the naming conventions of these response teams, with names like Scorpion, Crash, Red Dog, and Titan, and why and how these names became a self-fulfilling prophecy of overreach and violence. We also talked at length about the need for contiguous standards in education with the more than 800,000 uniformed police officers in the United States, and how we can begin to build a more constructive dialogue between the men and women of law enforcement and the communities they serve. It was my honor to talk with both Nick and Eric about these controversial topics, and I hope you learn as much as I did with their candid and honest responses to my questions. All right, gentlemen, there's our legal warning. We are on camera. So I want to thank you both for joining me at True 30 this morning. Eric, Nick, welcome to the show. Thank, thank you for having thank us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So I, quick introductions. Obviously, I did the full-blown intro, but Nick, you're the CEO of the Institute of American Policing Reform. And Eric, you're the VP of Standards, Education, and Training. And so we're going to go over a little bit of what you guys are doing in there, why you founded it, Nick, and all the good work you're doing. Um, from what I understand, and I'll just give you my two cents on it, is the Institute is a mix of heterodox thinkers from both sides of the political aisle. And based on my preliminary chat with Eric, it sounds like your Institute's a microcosm of what needs to happen in America. So I like the fact that you have a team of mixed races, ideologies, and viewpoint diversity at the Institute. And I think that's a really good place to start. Why don't you start with us, Nick? Why did you start this? And what have, what is your duty as CEO? What gets you up in the morning and uh, what keeps you keeps you up at night? <laughs> Thanks again, Joey. I mean, it has been quite a journey in the really what will be three years since I launched the Institute back in June of 2000. It was inspired, quite frankly, by the response to the murder of George Floyd. When we look back upon that time, we can see where... It was a different response from 
across America and around the world. We had not seen an outpouring of concern over American policing that we saw uh, in this time. Now, the murder of George Floyd wasn't the first of its kind at the hands of policing, but I think that when people saw this arrogant police officer with his hands rested on his haunches, as he looked out with this his attitude, this apparent mindset of impunity for what he was doing while he was literally murdering a man, I think that really set things in motion for the way that people felt and responded. Now, I will confess that I did not immediately decide that I would launch the Institute for American Policing reform as a result of that. It was literally a calling. I mean, my phone and my emails were blowing up from around the world because of my background in really addressing police performance, police ethics, police standards around the world for almost three decades. And the common question to me was, Nick, what are you going to do about this? And so I took that as, as a great reason to the law the Institute, based upon my experience and background, and the hope, the hope, Joey, that we really are ready in America for, I like your words, this Herculean task of reforming likely the most entrenched institution in American society, notwithstanding, you know, Congress. Oh, that's great. And Eric, I know that you guys, I think you guys were in leadership together in Santa Rosa. I'm not sure your background's over there. I know you were the captain at Santa Rosa PD, and I know you were in leadership as well and a former chief, Nick. But how did you, what happened? How did Nick recruit you, Eric? <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't easy, first of all, let me tell you that. As Nick said, uh, yeah, so Nick and I started, I started at Santa Rosa PD. Nick was a new sergeant, and uh so Nick and I worked graveyard together for a few years, uh, as is what happens when you're a new officer and a new sergeant. And uh, so we've known each other now for 28 years. So I was getting ready to retire. And when George Floyd happened, I was about a year out from retirement. And uh, so my plan was to leave law enforcement and after 28 years experience something completely different frankly. And Nick and I were scheming on something completely different together already. And then George Floyd happened. And much like Nick, we had seen uh, we had seen uh, deaths before, killings before, excessive force before. That was shocking to concerning, definitely. I don't think anyone had seen anything like George Floyd. In 28 years, I had never seen a police officer do what Derek Chauvin did with just no concern whatsoever for the people looking at him, for George Floyd, for the people around him, for what was going to happen, for any consequence whatsoever. Kneel on a man's neck and back for nine minutes and not have any concern whether the man lived or died, whether George Floyd ever got up again. It just wasn't, it didn't seem to be a concern in his mind. It just really was was beyond anything that that I could imagine a police officer doing. 
And I'd seen, and obviously in 28 years, and I spent a lot of time in the personnel division where I was in charge of internal affairs, multiple investigations. I've been involved in firing several personnel. Never seen anything like that. And frankly, was a a motivator to, to be glad that I was leaving the business when I was. Okay. And then jo- and then Nick got a hold of me uh, with the with the idea for the institute, and I'll be honest with you, I really didn't have to think twice. Nick is the only person, the only partner I would have at that point come back into the realm of policing for. We had been through the George Floyd riots, the defund. It, it had been a very difficult year already. I bet, and looking you know for a break from that but when nick got a hold of me and and told me what was on his mind and what he was planning i told him during that phone call yes i'm in i'm in because you know this needs to be done it needs to be done and we we can't allow policing in america to fail we can't allow it to lose legitimacy we can't allow people not to feel safe and secure and equitably safe and secure in their communities. We just, we cannot allow that. There is no other option other than the police. Right. Thank you. So obviously there's so much to cover when it comes to policing, but what we're here for today is to talk about what you guys helped me understand. There's special units. In my homework, I looked up things like police tactical units and police tactical um, task force, and they have all these different names for them, but obviously another shocking moment for our culture in addition to george floyd's murder was what took place with tyree nichols in memphis and the actual group of men now and here's a quick quick question out of the 40 people assigned to that task force scorpion and i haven't found this yet but there was 40 individuals on the task force at scorpion and so what we want to do is kind of get into where did these units come from what was the origin i have Something I listed out here from an academic paper, the International the International Journal of Police Science and Management. The, the use of police tactical teams in North America has increased over time. For example, between the 1980s and the early 2000s, the use of tactical teams substantially increased in the United States, with the number of estimated deployments rising from 3,000 to 45,000 by 2001. Along with the rise in the use of tactical teams, there also appears to be an expansion of their mandate such that tactical teams are no longer reserved for high-risk calls, such as hostage takings, but instead are frequently used for tasks like warrant executions and patrol active. So I mentioned that because when I talked to Lieutenant Snetzinger about this off off camera, he mentioned that even during his tenure as a as a leader in the uni- in the department, that there would be a task force for bad intersections. <laughs> like, hey, we need you guys to write enough tickets. We need you to make this intersection safer. We need to, you know, fix this. That's a pretty, you know, surrounded goal, right? <laughs> we need less accidents, more tickets. But with a, a a task force or a special unit, let's just call them that, what is the origin of these special units? As you guys are aware, what's the good? And then obviously we know the bad. So let's start with the, where did it come from and what's the good? Well, I'm going to start on a very general level, and then perhaps uh, Eric can drill down a little bit. But I think it's important for us to make the distinctions in the terminologies, because the terminology makes a difference in really identifying 
what may be the value add or even the risk associated with the deployment of these type of units. Okay. So a task force, we generally think of that as a limited endurance unit. It's organized for a very specific, specialized purpose, which you would hope has a beginning and its end. So it has a, almost as the word implies, it has a task to complete, and then the group is uh, then this, you know, disassembled. Okay. A, a special unit in uh, the tactical units, those are two things that often get mixed, right? In general, in policing, and I think the article that you reference it refers to tactical units, and the tactical units are generally also known as SWAT, you know, Special Weapons and Tactics, or SRT, Special Response Teams. These are generally specialized units within the department's and of course, depending upon the size of the department, they can be either a permanent union at a place like NYPD, or they might be a collateral duty at a place like Santa Rosa Police Department. The unit is permanent in its existence because it has a specialized response uh, capability. And as the article reference, that has sort of grown, and I want to speak to my opinion about why that has grown in the use of these units from, you know, a situation where it's a barricaded suspect or a hostage-taking situation with a dangerous individual or yep. some sort of rescue unit where you would call out these specialized uh, SWAT or special response teams. <clears throat> now, specialized units don't have to have the level of tr specialized training that you often see in SWAT and special response team. They go to special schools, they learn special tactics, they learn the use of special weapons. Those SWAT and SRT or any other names that are attached to those what have were originally called SWAT units, they go to specialized training. I mm -hmm. I was a part of Santa Rosa's, we called it a special response team, SRT, although we called it SWAT for, for a time. And I went to three different levels of schools. I went to the basic school, I went to the, the tactical school, and I went to the tactical commander school as a part of that. So it's very specialized. Okay. Now, if we come back to the units like the unit of concern in Memphis, this so-called Scorpion unit, which, by the way, I think is a horrible name um, for to assign to anything. And people tend to live up to the names that you give them in many ways, or these units tend to live up to these names. They tend to be formed around a particular concern that requires concentrated enforcement. We, we want the officers to focus on, for instance, um, we have a heavy felon population that is we believe exists in the city we have uh, stacks of warrants for these persons we need to find these people serve these warrants get them off of the streets right okay. generally those specialized units they can be short-term almost like a task force but for some departments obviously for <clears throat> memphis they tend to be long-term 40 persons that's a huge unit 
I mean, that's no small specialized unit. That's a lot of people. You know, when you consider that 87% of the police departments in America are 50 persons or less, and about 85% of them are 25 persons or less, right. that 40-person unit was larger than the overwhelming average size of police departments in America. So just to kind of give you a perspective about that number of people, I think, quite frankly, of course, it's easy to look back on things, but that's what you're subject to when you create things. I think it was clearly an error in judgment to even sustain that unit, for that unit to be in existence in the first place, notwithstanding the reports that there were significant complaints about uh, those units leading up to the death of Tyree Nichols. So. You know, I may have already spoken to your question on that, but I really thought it was important. <laughs> no, you did answer the question. And, you know, you actually touched on something that I have in my notes, too. A lot of the names, <laughs> just the names of these teams, you know, as a layperson, I, I look at these things just like everyone else that I talked to after this tragedy. You look at Crash, Red Dog Units, Scorpions. You know, it, it's like if you give a bunch of dudes <laughs> a really cool name <laughs> and say, go out and kick some ass and take some names. I mean, it's they're going to live you know, up to that. It, they are going to live up to it. You know, if you name a guy bulldog, he's, he's going to yeah. be a different dude than if his name is Pete. Right. So yeah. like, where, where does that come from? Like, how does that, like, how does, how did that even get through, you know, intellectuals like yourself, you guys have been in the biz for a long time. Where, where do the names come from? Oh, by the way, Crash wasn't just Crash. It was originally called Trash. <laughs> and they wow. had to re reconstitute it because it was offensive. <laughs> you know, like, well, yeah, you crash think? means community resources <laughs> against street hoodlums. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> and so, it, it, yeah, I mean, when you examine all of these things, um, again, so the issue is that policing culture is rooted in authoritarianism. That's just a fact. Okay. So we all know the adage, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, corrupts absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's think about this for a moment. The average police officer in America, you know, immediately has the power to either remove a person's liberty or to take their life. Yeah, that's, that's pretty powerful, right? Yeah. And so when you bring together a group of individuals who believe that they have that stinger power of a scorpion to take care of the bad guys on the street, well, that's going to mess with with heads. And it's eventually yeah. going to mess with behavior because there is a corruption that they are subject and vulnerable to. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that, Eric? I mean, you obviously ran a, a pretty, you had, what, 180 uniformed officers in Santa Rosa under your command? And we had, yeah, and I... uh have been involved in supervising special teams. And I created a special team before in the last year that I was there that's still running right now that's main focus is ghost guns and gun violence. So let's talk about why, how they can be good and how you make them good. Please. And yes. then let's talk about what happens okay. to Scorpion and Red Dog and Crash and everyone else. Okay. So the reason they can be good and the reason they were initially created was a special a specialized team to focus on one specific problem or one specific area 
becomes necessary because patrol resources are always stretched thin. There's never enough patrol officers barely to handle just 911 calls, let alone to focus for months or long term on a significant problem. So the way that these came about is you would pull together a team uh, as Nick said, it could be a task force, meaning it may only go a month, two months, maybe a year, or it may be a long-term team whose focus will be different neighborhood-oriented problems that are beyond patrol resources, but they're not detective resources because you need to respond to them. So in order to put these teams together, number one, you have to have a clearly defined mission. Why are you even doing this? You know, What is the problem you're trying to solve? So if the problem you're trying to solve is gun violence, the proliferation of illegal guns, ghost guns, and shootings, that is a very narrow focus and mission for the team. You guys are going to focus on gun violence. You're not going to go out and sweep what we call sweep coin pockets, which means you're not going to be out there looking for little dope arrests. You're not going to be out there stopping people for, you know, BS traffic violations every 10 seconds. You will be tracking down, identifying gun offenders, violent felons, parolees, people who have histories of carrying guns, using guns, and you will be focusing on those people and you will be focusing on getting to an investigative unit or getting into yourselves, people who are manufacturing or selling illegal firearms. That is your focus. That is your mission. Okay. Okay. Not to run roughshod through through neighborhoods, pulling over everything you see and harassing every citizen and pulling people out of cars, you know, here, there and everywhere, just hoping to find a gun. No, that's not your mission. Very clear on your mission, number one. Number two, you have to be very clear on your leader's intent, and that's part of your mission. That means that when the chief buys off on this mission, when he when the chief buys off on forming the team, they have a very clear intent of what they want and how that team will operate to represent the Santa Rosa Police Department, whichever police department, and how they will operate in conjunction with and to the benefit of the community. That needs to be clearly defined and dictated with your mission. It's essential. Again, clear instructions on how the unit will operate, because this is where you run into this tactical problem, okay? Why it are you putting people, and I'm not saying there's not a reason to, but there needs to be a good reason to put people in unmarked patrol cars in tactical uniforms with tactical gear that's outside of normal patrol gear and wearing baklavas and face coverings when they make contacts and rush up on cars. Why are you doing that? When we know, police research tells us, number one, that visibility is one of the biggest crime deterrents out there. Meaning if you want to deter any kind of crime, you put marked units out in patrol uniforms, you will deter more crime that way anyhow. So why are you hiding them in vehicles and and having them sneak up on people and so on as a patrol level street team? All right. So that's another thing you need to clearly define as we did, you will operate in a marked Santa Rosa patrol car in a standard patrol uniform carrying standard patrol gear, which if, uh, standard patrol gear already includes rifles and shotguns and pistols and all kinds of stuff. What more do you need out there on the street? 
you're better armed than most soldiers who are sitting in a military base and on U.S. soil right now. So, you know, that needs to be clearly defined. Strong supervision. The 40-person Scorpion team was divided into 410 officer teams who, by the admission of the department, spent a lot of their time completely unsupervised. 100% unacceptable to put a bunch of 22 to 24-year-old, two to five-year cops who were selected, I'm assuming, because most of the time you select people to these teams who are go-getters. They're aggressive. Not that they're aggressive towards people, but they're aggressive towards their work. They're producers. They're go-getters. They're they're, you know, excited to be at work and do the tasks they're given. You have to supervise people like that. Yep. And generally, these teams also, they work hours that most senior officers don't want to work. They work weekends. They work graveyard. They work late swing. So you're always going to get young, younger officers generally really interested in that. Therefore, you need strong senior sergeants supervising them, which is what we did in the team with Santa Rosa. We did have younger officers. We selected and talked a very senior, very experienced sergeant we trusted into working days and hours. He probably didn't want to, you know, to keep to keep that team well supervised. And he did that for us. And it, it it's what it needed. Um the, and that goes along with the accountability of that's great. You have a strong street level supervisor out there with the team. Where's the accountability over that supervisor? Which lieutenant is holding accountable that team, reviewing their arrests, reviewing their work, reviewing complaints if there are any, making sure to hold that team accountable to its mission, to the leader's intent and to the operation parameters that we set up. My guess is that didn't happen with the Scorpion team or the Red Dog team or the Gun Trace Task Force. In fact, we know it didn't happen with any of those teams. The one thing I found in common with all of these teams was that the oversight was non-existent. Right. So to your point, it just wasn't there. And and that was another thing, too, where CJ, the the chief of police at at Memphis, you know, there's questions already about her tenure. Like what we if you didn't know, that's a problem. And then if you did know and didn't do anything, that's a problem as well. And so to your point earlier, if you look at the width and breadth of policing, was approximately 800,000 uniformed police officers in the United States, 18,000 police departments. And that number was surprising when I first read it, that 80, 85% are less than 20. So if you have less than 20 officers, you have a couple things going on there. One of which is you don't have a lot of budget. You don't have a lot of time for training even like de-escalation and mental health and all the things necessary for peace officers to actually do their job correctly. How is it? Is it, is it, a, is it a purely budgetary issue guys in the sense that to oversee this, to your point, Eric, you have a Sergeant in charge of the tactical unit. You have more oversight on your side. You have more oversight on the chief. Is it, is it a budgetary issue with these tactical units or these special teams that is causing a lot of the problems or is it just, I don't know, I want to say is that people just haven't learned their lesson, that if you don't oversee these teams, they go sideways. I think it's both. I think, yeah. first of all, as we just talked about, look at all the thinking we just talked about that needs to go into the creation of the team. 
That doesn't happen. Generally, they just throw the team up. So look look at Scorpion. So Scorpion's mission was drugs, stolen cars, and dope. Okay, that's a very wide mission. But the intent was to stop violent crime. So explain to me, number one, explain that mission to me. What is your intent? Are you sweeping coin pockets? Are you taking stolen cars? Are you... Because gangs is a very specialized knowledge. And usually there's a unit that handles gangs specifically. Mm -hmm. Dope is a different kind of work. You know, guns are a different work. It's not that these things don't intersect. But if your mission is violent crime, how do, how are you intersecting these things? What is the mission? What are these guys supposed to be out there doing on right. the street? Okay. Yeah. So they get stood up really quick, uh, generally for political reasons, because things are going on and they need an immediate response without the thought going into it. What happens along with that? Yes. Budgetarily, I don't have enough supervisors in the Memphis Police Department Right. To peel four, five, six, seven, eight sergeants off of whatever they're doing right now to watch this team so they they go unsupervised. A small department's not even going to have a team like this. They don't have yeah. the the budget personnel, anything. Yeah. But the big department, to your point, Joey, yes, budgetarily, they actually don't have enough supervisors, sergeants, and lieutenants. They probably don't even really have enough officers. They're still in you know, it, robbing Peter to pay Paul somewhere already. Yeah. And then they don't put the people into the units, the accountability supervision. They put the cops in to go out and kick butt on the street. And then they don't put the accountability and supervision and oversight in to make sure that it doesn't go sideways. So it really speaks in a sort of a microcosm level of where we are looking at police reform on a, a macro level for the nation. Because you, we are constructing, constructing our reform upon five key areas, and that are police accountability, mm-hmm. police standards, education, and training, police leadership, upon community uh, engagement, and upon laws and policies. When you look at this unit, even in the context of its purpose, where there may have been clear evidence for a need to at least focus on the crime areas which they may have been originally conceived of, mm-hmm. when you put it in the context of the pillars, even to the level of community engagement, you know what is it that we can draw from the community? What can we do within the community to help us find solutions? Again, I don't know if that is was done as a preliminary approach to the decision to form this unit and to even maintain this unit. But it really bears out an example of where things can go terribly wrong if you haven't checked the box in all of those areas. Leadership, standards, education, or training, accountability, laws and policies, and community engagement. It goes to the heart of why we form the Institute the way that we have and are building our reform effort upon those five key areas. Yeah, and that's you know front and center to your organization, the five pillars as you have them called out. Yeah. And I think that that is a common theme specific to a lot of the homework I did on you guys specifically. And you know, obviously there's a lot of different company, a lot of different tactic 
it's out there and there's a lot of different special teams out there. But the one thing that you did a, a really cool piece, you were with the American Institute of Research and you hosted a panel called Building Bridges to Equity, Research Investment Strategy and Responsibilities to Community in Policing. And you had some of my favorite thinkers in there, specifically Nancy Kandor, who was the chancellor yes. of Rutgers, because I, I read a lot about her when I was doing my defund the police research. And then the professor, uh, Phil Goff, who was the, and is the, um, he's the African-American studies professor at Yale. And he's also, um, yeah, he owns, well, he runs so yeah, many he's the, he's the founder and the, uh, the founder and CEO of the Center for Policing Equity. Thank and you. So Phil has done just some fantastic work, and Nancy Cantor, just yeah, as you say, just amazing people in the background of, uh, and at the forefront of, you know, genuine reform efforts. Yeah. So let's just stick with this for a second because what they talked about at a macro level, I thought was really unique, and some of the homework I did over the last year on defund the police spoke to really cool prototypes. Cahoots up in the Northwest. Santa Rosa PD has the in-response teams now that I went over with length with Chief Police Captain or Cregan. And that was mentioned by uh, Professor Goff in the sense that he said, we need to implement systems of care versus systems of punishment. And he said, mm -hmm. so we're seeing that now with reallocated budgets. And part of the frustration for me as a former media executive was defund the police was just the wrong phrase. <laughs> Maybe someone thought it was clever. Oh, it's, you know, it fits on a bumper sticker. You're like, great, but that's not, that's not working, right? It did right. work on so many fronts. And it was one of those things where we have these local initiatives that are proving to bear out good fruit, right? So yes. To, yes. to the listeners who haven't seen it, the in-response team, as an example, in Santa Rosa, I know a little bit about, but they have a nondescript van that has three people in it. It has a homeless advocate who has been on the street, so understands the plight of this person on, with a mental breakdown. They have a paramedic, you know, who's trained to help people in time of need, specifically their health. And then they have a trained clinical therapist with 3,000 hours of standards and uh, clinician training. And they go out in a nondescript van to these calls. And as Chief of Police Cregan said, the goal with the organization is to have 25% of the calls into dispatch being handled by these folks, because that's kind of the number that was gelling around mental health, right? Would yeah. you guys say that this type of an organization, whether it's Cahoots, whether it's Star in Dallas, whether it's In Response in Santa Rosa, is this a special unit or is it something different? Because this to me sounds like a good use of having a, a group, you know, a special group of men and women work together. What What's the difference between those units and these you know, gang units in these yeah. tactical units. You know, and I think what eventually will be the better outcome of this is that it will continue to be attached to the community's engagement. You know, you're talking about people who are not sworn police officers. You're talking about folks who are from within the community to bring the expert from within the community. And they're just operating under the auspices of the police department. And what I hope will eventually become the standard of community life is this will be a part of a community response, not necessarily attached to the police department. At the Institute for American Policing Reform, when we say community, we don't mean 
the community and the police, we mean the community which is inclusive of that policing function, Mm -hmm. right? So there are certain functions really belongs outside of the primary responsibility of the police department. It belongs as a primary community, social response to these issues. And that's been a collective, you know, because Eric, we talked about this briefly, but leadership in police departments have been asking for the same thing that social activists are asking for today. And that was the one thing that really gelled for me when I interviewed the chief of police and a couple different notes is every chief that I talked to over the last year said the same thing. We need more budget for cameras because that's very expensive to have body cameras on police. I don't think most people understand very the amount of money that goes into that as far as repositories and making sure when do you yeah. turn the camera on, when do you turn it off, where does it come on, how is it all that data stored, what do you do with all that data, right? Those are big problems. What about de-escalation training? What about mental health services? What about issues specific to PTSD with the officers? These are all things that police chiefs across the country that I listened to and talked to said that was the red thread. Like yeah. we need more budget for all these things. And with a a divided culture that we have today, it's so rare that when you see people from different sides of the aisle agree, the social progressives that I interviewed at the DNC here in Sacramento, who wanted to abolish the police, by the way, just to be clear, I asked them, if you had your druthers, what would you do differently? And they all said the same thing that the chief said. Well, we don't think that police should be the remedy for everything. That every Mm -hmm. call that comes into dispatch is not a need for a gun and a badge and a uniformed officer in a police car to go out and take care of the problem. And I think that specifically with all the problems we're having with community today, what what does it look like, Eric, in the sense that we have these budgetary issues and we have this agreement between activists and leadership and police that we need more money for mental health. We need more money for these special units you know, the in responses, the stars, the cahoots program. What does that look like moving forward as far as additional budget? What are you guys doing on the police, you know, the Institute side of things? Are you guys trying to get more federal budget, more nationalized focus? What does that look like? So for us, first of all, it looks like advocating exactly what you're talking about, Joey. And the number one thing that people need to understand is when the police department were given the problem of homelessness, the problem of drug addiction, and the problem of mental health to solve, they were never given people or money to solve those problems. In all the years I was at Santa Rosa Police Department, our budget almost never went up. It always remained flat or went backwards, yet the responsibilities, the expectations, the mission creep from things that didn't belong in the police department was constant. And no more more so for us than mental health and homelessness. And you can put drug addiction right in between those two oh, because sure. they go hand in hand. They do. Now, number one, it's one thing if you don't get the money to do it, to hire people to you know respond to more calls. But even if you did, police officers are not the people you want responding to solve homelessness and mental health and drug addiction because they are not trained to do that. Police department, police officers are trained to go out and keep the peace and investigate crime and when necessary, arrest people or take them to jail or, or do the standard functions that every person thinks about that cops do. So the beauty of in response 
and I know uh, John was on and talked about it, is it is not part of the police department. It is its own thing. These units need to be separate from the police department. Around 85% of police violent encounters involve mental health, drug addiction issues, mainly mental health. Wow, 85%. Around 85% So of violent encounters. So what does that tell you? It tells you when the officer gets there, they're probably encountering someone. And beyond that, the vast majority, over 50% of initial calls for service are not even dispatched as a criminal or what we could, would consider a crim, a serious criminal call. So that tells you that the police go to a lot of things that really don't have a lot to do with crime right now. And it's a drain on their resources, their expertise, and it's causing violent encounters that probably don't need to be occurring. Now, if someone is armed and threatening someone and they are a, an a, immediate danger, you're going to have to send the police to that. But I can yep. tell you right now, that is not the majority of calls for mental health services, for homeless services, and drug addiction services that we're dispatched to. That simply is not it. So something like in response can easily take 25% of those nonviolent calls and handle them when they show up. They're not uniformed, armed police officers, because the first thing that most people in crisis think especially mental health, when an armed uniformed police officer shows up, is they're going to force me into a hold. Because the number one tool of police officers is the 5150 hold, the mental health 72-hour evaluation. You know, this is not a therapist. Their solution is put this person on a hold, drive them somewhere, hand them off to a therapist. I can tell you by going hundreds and hundreds of mental health calls. That's what they would tell you. You're just here to put me on a hold. So already you're in conflict. You're already in conflict the minute they see you. So the beauty of in response and the beauty of those type of teams is they aren't generally in any immediate conflict. That's not the vibe they're bringing. It's non-threatening and it's therapy, it's treatment, which is what the person in crisis is looking for. So we need to separate these out. As far as how the budgets are going to happen, there is no magic pill for this. Cities and counties have failed to fund proper response to these social ills for 20 years. They're going to have to fund them and they're going to have to come up. They're going to have to decide some priorities and come up with the money to do this because it's not in the police department. Our Santa Rosa PD could not fund in response. The city council initially took a million dollars from the police department to launch it, but had to give the million back or lose four police officers. There was no other option. We didn't have an extra million dollars. 90% of law enforcement agencies' budget is personnel. 10% is everything else. If you take a million dollars, you're losing cops, period. And we don't have them to lose. We already don't have enough. No one has enough of them and, and they're getting harder to find. So we advocate for this position and we advocate that, yeah, some things cost money and they're expensive. So do you want to continue to have police shootings, multi-million dollar civil settlements coming out of your coffers, out of your cities and counties? Or do you want to spend like Santa Rosa did, three or four million dollars to save millions and millions and millions of dollars 
ongoing down the road. Yeah. You, know, you know, you know, it's uh the the penny wise dollar foolish argument, right? That's yeah. generally where cities and counties are with their budgets and the appropriate services. Yes. And that's actually where I think that there's violent agreement <laughs> with everyone in leadership that I've talked to. It's not a that no one is saying that police should be removed from the streets. You know, that's that I mean, there are people on the left that are saying that, but I'm saying that cops in leadership understand that we have a certain amount of people. We've gone with those numbers for a reason. We need this many people on the street and we need to take care of them. Now, separate of that are these other teams, whether it's in response units or cahoots or star, those are separate budgets, not even part of the police department themselves. Sep and the reason I asked about that was because they're working. So there are these like individual units of people that are doing things that are doing well. And you mentioned some good examples early on, Eric, about task force or special units that are doing good things, right? So that's another thing. If there's thousands of these special units out there in the United States, and there's, based on those numbers, there's very few horror stories, right? Memphis obviously being one of them, Scorpion being one of them, the, the nightmare that took place in Baltimore. Thanks again, Eric, for the nod. Um, you know, We Own These Streets is a book and a docu-series on HBO for those of you listening that want to watch this. This took place in 2017, and it was a horrible example of what takes place with some of these units. I'm not sure how big the units were that were in Baltimore, but they were, there was a featured guy named Wayne Jenkins, who was the sergeant in charge of this unit. And there was 13 of them arrested, put behind bars for many years. Wayne went back for 28 years, I think. He's still in Kentucky prison. But what they did was really, really bad. And the reason I bring up the show is because I did sit through it and there was a, an exchange. And again, this was the docuseries. So <laughs> this might have been dra dramatized a little bit, but it was a former beat cop who spent 25 years in duty in Baltimore. Good dude. And I looked him up. He's real. And he was now an instructor at the academy. And he was talking to a civil rights attorney about all the bad stuff that was happening in Baltimore with this unit. And he said, you know, what is it that you need to say that you can't say? This was him asking the civil rights attorney. And she said, well, I don't understand what you mean. He said, what's the mission? Why are we all here? And she said, the drug war. And he said, exactly. The war on drugs is the stupidest thing ever done. <laughs> In a war, you need warriors. In war, you have enemies. In war, civilians get hurt. And nobody does anything. In a war, you count the bodies and you call them victories. If the DOG is going to admit that we've lost this war, that's a good start. And so that was kind of where you're looking at thing because, oh, everything that I've researched on this, and this isn't just the United States, it's other areas of the world that have attempted to do what we're attempting to do, have had to get together with everyone, judges, employers, parole officers, police officers, community people, social workers, psychologists, right? It all has to be part of a solution and the community itself has to be part of it. And what he talked about in this docuseries as well, is he said, you know, you can't do good policing if the people you're asking for help after you punch them out or after you mm -hmm. steal money from them, right? They're not going to help you. And so the community itself is part of, it's one of your pillars. What do you guys think? Well, let me just ask you this. Do you think these special units are viable? long-term considering what's going on in the press because the optics of them aren't good 
<laughs> I mean, I, I, as a layperson, I've looked into some, and, and there's they seem to be some very good special units that are there's efficacy involved, and there's good people involved, and there's good uh, supervision and governance involved. But as a whole, to your point, if you have 85% of the police departments don't have enough units to even have people on the street, they can have a special unit. And then these bigger departments like LA, New York, you know, with these special units, if they're not putting the governance in charge, you're just going to see men running wild. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to speak, you know, from, you know, the representation of the Institute's position on that is that we would rather not see these type of units in existence. At we all. Would, well, at a level of the task force, remember I talked okay. about the distinction yep. between yep. it. Yep. So if these units are formed with us, as Eric described, with a specific task, with a specific yep. mission, with specific guidance, with specific oversight, et cetera, on a task level, that is you work at a task, you work the task to completion, you know, and, and some tasks take longer than others, then there may be a place for that. But yep. otherwise, because we so are so invested in what you can gain from better community relationships with yeah. better community engagements, we think that is where there's a huge element missing in making the, even the decision to form these units in the first place. That's a great yeah, answer. Joey, I think I think that the key to the ones that will survive is the community engagement and transparency piece. Because I'll tell you, take, for example, again, Santa Rosa, when the special enforcement team came out, it was very transparent with the community about this is the team, this is the mission, this is specifically what the team will do. And they are constantly updating the community on what the team's doing. And the community also knows who's in charge of those teams, where that team supervision and accountability lies if there's an issue. The ones that will survive will be ones that are engaging with the community and they're transparent about what they're doing and they're getting the community's support, cooperation, and involvement in what they're doing. Take, for example, Atlanta PD, the Red Dog unit. I know you yeah. know that one. Yeah. Red Dog was disbanded over 10 years ago amid a flurry of lawsuits for behaving basically like Scorpion behaved. Yeah. Now, 2021, fast forward 10, 11 years later, Titan unit. Yeah. What's the Titan unit? The revived Red Dog unit. So yeah. I read some articles about that. And of course, there's a lot of people around in the community who remember Red Dog. So they said, Chief, why are we going back? This is just the Red Dog unit. No, it's different. Tell us how it's different. Uh, they're going to do. They're going to focus on different stuff. Tell us how it's different this time. <laughs> um, well, you just have to trust me. They're going to focus on different stuff, and they're going to be a lot more aggressive. And you're going more aggressive. <laughs> Wait a second. Oh so, <laughs> and where is the engagement and the transparency? Where is the explanation? I mean, how do you even? Get the gall to revive the unit to begin with, with another crazy, as we've talked about, Scorpion and Skull Crusher and Punisher unit or whatever they're calling <laughs> these things. Exactly. The Titan unit. But the Warriors. Know, yeah. How do you get the gall? Come out to play. After, after Red Dog to make it again and then make the statements he made in front of the community. Uh, I, I mean, we should get one of those little Super Bowl boards and put on there, what date is this thing going to implode through lawsuits and scandal? Because it's going to. 
Well, that yes. was 2021. That was Chief Rodney Bryant. And I read about that because it's exactly what you said. You nailed it. He actually said, well, what are you guys going to do different? He goes, well, the Titan unit will have to be more aggressive. That's his quote. <laughs> You're like, dude, what are it, you, you know, talking it's, about? It's laughable because it's sad. I mean, it really is. You, know, you don't know what to do. You, you think you can't make this stuff up, right? No, um, you really can't. So, it, and that's bad. actually part of the optics that I'm talking about. So, you know, when you put the task force together in Santa Rosa, you said a couple of things that stood out. They were in uniforms. So they're actual, you know, police uniforms. Patrol, and, not BDUs, not tactical. Exactly. BDUs, patrol uniforms. There was no name, you know, <laughs> right? So it was like, okay, this is a this is a task force. This is what we're going to do. And you had governance no. and supervision. And so to me, that's where it starts to make sense of can these special units have purpose and efficacy? You know, yes, it seems to be the answer. But the question then is with these big departments, Atlanta, and there's thousands of them still out there, mm-hmm. New York, LA, you know, Baltimore, Boston, Philadelphia. I mean, you see the, the bigger departments, they all have these issues around gangs and a spike. And so one of the things that I mm-hmm. saw that was common thread between you know, all the documentaries and the and the articles that I read and the white papers that I read was that as of since 2020, and that has a lot to do with us all being locked up in our houses, you know, crime is on the rise, murders on the rise, robberies, grand theft, every big thing specific to crime is up right now in a lot of these major cities. And because of that, mayors, and it's another thing, this gets bit political, Mayors are like, I need my numbers down, <laughs> right? And then they go to the chief and they're like, hey, chief, you're killing me. You know, we got yeah. more stuff. I need a task force. You know, I need a scorpion. I need this because the one thing that I saw that was understandably beneficial for the politicians was the numbers. We took mm-hmm. this many guns off the streets. Yeah. We arrested this many people. We we confiscated this many cars this amount of, you know, cocaine and heroin. And you're like, okay. And then that was the big press release, right? And it's it's one of those things where it just never goes away. You're like, okay, if you have all these things happening, why, what's the next step, right? If, if what do we do to we're not worry so much about the optics, but worry about the actual force itself. And to your point, Eric, how do you, um, how do you measure that? What does the success look like outside of the, you know, the press, the media press, those kind of things. Well, when you look at pure numbers, um, yeah, they have 566 arrests in like four months, which is a lot. That's a lot of arrests. And they they did. They took 250 guns, $100,000 cash, 200 vehicles. And so when you look at it from the standpoint of, a, of the politicians and 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 some people in the community, specifically the ones that don't live in the exact community where these are operating, it looks like this big, tremendous success, of course. And if the unit's doing what it's supposed to, that would be tremendously successful. But mm-hmm. let's remember, you have eight people now being charged with murder. You have... Uh, I, I'm sorry, you have five being charged with murder. I'm thinking back to Baltimore. And one that's been fired, two or three or four more that'll probably be fired, every case that those officers wrote, you might as well write off. So in the end, subtract all of that out of your 566 and 250 and $100,000 and 270 cars, because you're going to end up with a lot less of 
productivity once the DA runs away from all these cases and drops them all and lets everyone out who's who's currently locked up for them. So that's the consequence of what happened there. So actually, the effectiveness of it is not significant after you factor that in. So it's a great point. And then there's also the fines, right? Civil fines specific to civil uh, liberties. Well, but, but here, those things don't mean problem solved, though, Joy. Here, here's the thing. To me, there is sort of a sleight of hand <laughs> movement when you start looking at, you know, look at all of the numbers and all of, you know, what's going on with the number of people. My question then becomes, okay, but did you solve the problem? Right. Those all symptoms. Really make any, I went 10 years ago, it's been 10 years now, I was invited to the National Association of Attorneys General Conference that they had uh, in, in California. And one of the presenters there was talking about this. He was this famous FBI agent who went under deep undercover um, in a drug, the so-called drug war. And one of the points that he made was, and just pointing to how ridiculous the drug war is, is that the U.S. government was spending on order of $50 billion to fight a $550 billion industry. So while, you know, it, so it was a losing battle either way you look at it, because the industry could afford to throw less than 10% of their effort toward loss compared mm -hmm. to what we were throwing into everything that was losing anyway. You know, these right. guys are buying submarines, sophisticated aircraft, digging all sorts of tunnels. And so we we fail. Now, I'm trained as a strategist. I, I, that's the way my brain goes. And so my fundamental question always goes beneath the surface of, of what we see up top in, in, you know, what I call the, you know, the, the sleight of hand movements to make you think something productive is actually going on. And nobody seems to ask at these press conferences, yeah, those are impressive numbers, Chief, but did you solve the problem? Or are you going to get that many more numbers again next month? And the chances are, the answer to that is no, we didn't solve the problem. And chances are we're going to make just as many arrests in the same span of time as we continue this losing battle. Because we're failing to look at what it takes to really deal with the problem. Drug use, we would have spent, we would have been better off if we've been spent that $50 billion on programs to keep people from using drugs in the first place, oh, right? The, yeah. Drug education, drug deterrence, things like that. So I, I guess I just needed to point out that all of these so-called impressive numbers never do anything for me because I'm still thinking, okay, but is the problem solved or did you just get a few bells and whistles to hang on, you know, the calendar as to, what what you did during those days that seemed so productive, but really yeah, isn't. no, and, and that is the common thread specific to what I did. And again, I, I I'm just doing some basic reporting on this, and that's why I wanted you guys on because the the big piece out there specific to our body politic is that you have because we're so divided, people say, well, we need more police, and then the, on on the one side we say we need less police, and the discussion's lost in what you guys helped articulate already. It's not a matter of more or less police, it's actually allocating specific resources to specific problems. So mental health, drug addiction, and homelessness are not problems that need to be solved by policing. 
right? We, that is something everyone agrees on. My progressive friends will say that they all understand that. And my friends on the, on the right who are actually, too, much like you guys, who are in the business of law enforcement and understanding what to do about reforming law enforcement, those things need to be separate. And then yeah. as it relates to special units, sometimes they can be you know, effective. And the question then goes back to everything to do with the policing discussion is budget. How many sergeants do you have on that team? How many people in leadership do you have above the sergeant, lieutenant, captain, chief, who's all involved? Are the officers being governed correctly? Are they in plain clothes? Or are they in actual uniforms? If not, why? <laughs> What's the benefit? Because the bigger question too, around every single one of these is that there's there was a piece by uh, Petula Dvorak in, in Washington Post, and it was obviously a scathing piece on these special units. But the one thing she talks about, and, and every liberal journalist talks about it, is that the crime, high crime neighborhoods are celebrated for the wrong reasons. So they go out and do exactly mm -hmm. what you talked about, sir. They come out and they say, hey, we removed this many guns, we removed these drugs, we removed these cars, and we put this many men behind bars. But the problem is if they did it illegally and they violated the civil rights of the, of the community, then the community doesn't want to help anymore. And that's actually where this, this blend or this gel of a necessary community that involves peace officers and judges and parole officers and homeless advocates and you know harm reduction policies across the board. All of those people need to work in concert if we're going to yeah. combat this problem, no matter what it is, gang violence, you know, drugs, because obviously that's on the rise in most major cities today. I live in San Francisco. I see it every day. We have an open drug market in an area called the Tenderloin. I yeah. drive my kids through there each and every day, back and forth. And it's gotten worse over yeah. the years. And so, yeah. you know, and the there's also something around police feeling feckless. Like they just, they no longer can get their job done because they see the same repeat offenders. They see them coming in and out of court. They don't even go to jail anymore. It's it's one of those issues where the police relationship with our community, even here in San Francisco is suffering. And I know you guys yes. have felt this. You know, what does that look like moving forward? From what I, I've read, even in my homework for you guys is that it's more difficult to recruit police today. We have more police officers resigning. We have more leadership resigning. And we have bad blood in the communities, specific yeah. to they don't trust police, right? Yeah. So what is, on your, with your institute, what are you guys doing on that front, you know, at a macro level? Is there legislation or is there, you know, different things you're working on as far as additional budgets? Or what you mentioned earlier, Nick, is there something, is there ever going to be a canopy, a national focus that takes care of all of this, specifically with our largest police departments throughout the country? All right, Nick, to reiterate, so, you know, thanks again, you guys. It's been way over an hour and I don't want to take too much of your time, but let's, what are you guys doing at the Institute to deal with some of the issues we talked about today? One of which is there's no national presence, which is really alarming to me, considering we need a national presence in the sense of budget and focus and understanding. And then you mentioned earlier too, that, you know, most of the departments are less than 20 officers, 85% actually, which is a staggering number, which means we have budgetary issues across the board. What is your institute doing in the sense of trying to get more national attention or national governance, uh, more budgets from both the, the national level, the state level, the city, county? What does that look like? What are you guys doing as an institute to try to bring communities back into this fold? You know, these are a whole bunch of questions, but that, however you want to focus on it, that's kind of what I'm looking for. Yeah. 
you know, we have to remember that, you know, the vision of the Institute is that we want, you know, standardized, trustworthy, human, human dignified policing services in all U.S. states and territories. Okay. And we have to visualize that in the context that we're never going to have nationalized policing. And we're not forwarding any concept of nationalized policing. Our Constitution delegates, you know, the authority of policing to the state level. Only the states can decide how they police themselves. And as long as it doesn't violate the constitutional rights of people, as long as it, it doesn't become a civil rights issue, the states pretty much determine how to, to police themselves. So what we are, what our aim is at the national level is creating a standardized framework for American policing. There's no reason there we go. why policing in Alabama should look from policing different from policing in California, look different from policing in New York, look different from policing in Texas. Now, I understand that like a tourism town in Truckee that I was the chief of police is there are going to be aspects of policing that city that's very different from what New York or Dallas or Los Angeles will have to do. We're not taking away the nuances that the policing has to bring to the, to the the character of its communities. But what we are saying is that there's absolutely no reason why the standards, the training and education, the accountability, the laws and policy that govern how policing is allowed to occur should not be the same. Unfortunately, at the Institute, what we're having to do through our great partnerships, for instance, again, I mentioned we have three wonderful law firms. We have Wild Gottschalk Manges, we have uh, uh, Hogan Lovells, we have Bassberry and Sims. All of these departments are standing with us and being willing to look and already have looked at laws and policies and standards. So we can ultimately propose standardized policing for the United States. We just have to get the states to adopt it. You know, we can't go to 18,000 plus police and entities in the United States, <laughs> but we can go to 50 states. Right. We can go to 50 governors. We can go to 50 attorneys generals. We can go to 50 attorneys generals and legislatures uh, to really just set the pace as to what their states will allow. Do you realize they are still states and still jurisdictions where the chief or the sheriff is allowed to say, hey, Joey, you're a fine-looking young man. Here's a badge and a gun. You go out there and do a good job and behave yourself, you hear? No training. And no training. Right, and see, that's an example, too. And, and, and what I, thank you for correcting me, because I didn't, I didn't mean to say that the that, that federal government should impose their beliefs on it. But what I was wondering is there's our national budget that could be. So to your point is they hand it down to the states and say, hey, look, we need to re we need to reimagine policing. Yes. And for that, we have 18,000 police departments. Here's the budgets. Here's a template of the training that needs to go in. And specifically to the Scorpion units, some of which, and I don't know if this is the reporting from the New York Times, but they talked about they relaxed the standards after 2020. And a couple of the actual guys in the unit had the relaxed standards. So sometimes yeah. you have to have an associate's degree in criminal justice, or you have to have at least 35 units of college. You have to have 
you know, these check boxes, they didn't have them, right? So we're starting to look now at a shortage of police. We're starting to look at less training, less requirements, less criteria. That sounds like a recipe for disaster, right? Well, it, it is. I don't even know how you get less police training in, <laughs> into the calculation. The average length <laughs> of training for a police officer in the United States is 10 and a half weeks. 10 and a half weeks, okay? Your barber is required to do almost four times. Yes. Hey, you know, Joey, well, he's frozen. I yeah. want to make a point about the relaxed, the relaxed standards because I read that too. And we track at the Institute, we track major use of force incidents, major shootings in a database to see from start to finish what happens. Yeah. What happens with the officers? Where does it go civilly, criminally, and so on? So I maintain that database. And part of what I do is look at all the officer backgrounds, everything I can find. Of those five, three had bachelor's degrees. Three of those officers had bachelor's degrees. Two, it didn't state that they had bachelor's. I don't know what their level of training was. Two of the three had come onto the force since those relaxed standards. So really, I understand that, that the organization may have lowered its standards and so on. To me, that didn't play a factor in what happened to Tyree Nichols. And because those officers exceeded the standards, the majority yes. of them. And so that I found that very interesting. That's why I always look at when I read these stories, I try to, to find out and verify it somewhere else. Um, but it's true they relaxed standards, but these officers weren't, didn't have the relaxed standards, at least the majority of them. You're really looking at a problem of policing culture, not yes. education. Okay. Now, I'm all for, I'm the vice president of standards, education, and training. I'm all for education and training. We have what we believe should be, and we've been working on a model that would, would be great to eventually get in this country for, for education and training standards that are way higher than it is right now, because we believe that policing is a skilled trade, not a profession by no definition. Is policing a profession when you can come in at 21 years old with a high school diploma and 10 and a half weeks of training? Uh, doctors are professionals. Lawyers are professionals. Other people right. are professionals. They have degrees. They have significant training, significant oversight and accountability boards state by state, which policing does not have state by state. So, um, but at any rate, I just wanted to interject while Nick's uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that, but we just got a, a downpour of, of snow here, and I think right concurrent with that. So the skiing's well, good. So it's all good. I, is that. I do look forward to getting up there this weekend. But another question on that note, because that's one of those things you talk about police culture. What Nick was talking about before he froze up was that we want to actually give the states some template. Here's what policing should do. Here's the requirements. Here's you know what officers need to be doing. Those all sound good for me as a layperson in the sense that yes, there's eighteen thousand departments, but there should be some contiguous requirements yes. across the board that we can hold up to. To your point, Alabama and California should look similar on those fronts, and yes. that where you're starting to deal with you know proper training. When you guys look at additional training, is that part of your focus as well? If it's ten and a half weeks now, do you have a recommendation 
that you well, know is, is it three months is it six months is have you looked at anything like that and said we need a year of training is there anything like that that's on the docket i i would tend to think and, and we are still working on an evidence to bear this out that six months would be a nice number um for us to start with keep in mind and i always say that training leads to rote mechanical behavior education leads to thinking and the reason why that's important in police service is that the rote mechanical behavior often leads to drawing out weapons faster than they need to to come out yeah we need a lot more thinking to go that you know i was i was a, a police academy uh instructor and I have to tell you, 85% of that time in the academy, which at that time was about 10 and a half weeks, um, was focused on training and maybe 15% on education, where we need to broaden our, in, you know, the, the change. And this is why it's going to cost more. It'll cost more for a police department that's in a, an officer away for 10 and a half weeks to send them away for six months, right, to, to get this training and education. But we believe we need to have police officers do, for lack of a better term, internships, right? So you spend, um, you know, two weeks of your time, for instance, in a place that's dealing with recovering alcoholics or dealing with people who are trying to come out of the this, this system after having been incarcerated. In other words, there are community level exposure issues that will allow officers to bring a different mindset to how they deal with people. We want police officers to see the person. That's why a big part of our vision is around human dignified policing. See the person. We recognize there may be times when a police officer has to take a human life, but there's no reason whatsoever for that to be lost on the fact that there is a human being and we and if a life has to be taken it will be absolutely necessary and in a situation in which there were no other options available to pre either prevent further you know deadly harm or loss of, of life so we put out a model use of force policy just two weeks ago as we help our one will go to the uh, our website at AmericanPolicingReform.org to take a look at both our use of force white paper and on the white paper that we put out on uh, police qualified immunity, because we do want to reimagine policing at the center of it is with the highest regard for human dignity. And that includes sometimes where a police officer may have to just back down and come at it another day when there's no imminent threat to others or a threat to society. And unfortunately, too many police officers are trained with a sort of a trained stand your ground mentality. And when you do that, you lose sight of the human being that's on the other end of your decision. And you're more focused on what you can do because it's lawful, but not what you should do because it's simply not necessary. Right. So that's the question. So let's just say that six months is a, is a future remedy, because that sounds cool, because it's more training. To your point, it's more education than tactics, but you get both. And then you also, the, the other question that runs up immediately with me is criteria of screening. So during my interview with Lieutenant Snetzinger, you watched that, Eric, we made the joke. I had a troubled past. I like to fight. I got in a lot of fights. I was not a good person 
to be a peace officer. Let's just say that. It, so, and John made it, he goes, we weed you out, Joey. We weed guys like you out. <laughs> and I was like, good. But my question there on a serious note is what is the criteria for police officers? Cause you mentioned culture. If you look at, you know, the, the scorpion crowd and the, the red dog units and all these two questions, how many women are on these units? <laughs> Cause I don't see a lot of women on them. And that's a problem to begin with, because women usually keep things in check. I and agree. Second is what happens, what happens on the screening? What does that look like for you guys at the Institute? Is it more rigorous moving forward? Because to me, it's kind of like the teacher problem we have. We have a teacher shortage. So what are we doing? Well, we need to pay more. We need to treat them better. <laughs> Do all these different things. Same thing with cops. This is a big budgetary issue. So let's just say that we get the budget. We get some kind of, you know, federal say, hey, we're going to give money to each state so you guys can bring these contiguous plans to roll out, reimagine police departments, and it's going to make everybody better. What does that criteria look like on your end? You came from this, Eric. What does it look like to have more strict criteria around hiring? So the way hiring works, number one, there's no national standard. So every state's going to have a different standard based on whatever their police officer standard and training in the 48 states that has one tells them is the minimum. Now, take California. We consider California to be a very progressive law enforcement state, and it is. You get five and a half months of training in California. You now have to have a two-year degree. Post had tells you these are the things, requirements you must meet for hiring. But here's the deal. They tell you in broad terms the requirements you need to meet. Yes, you have to do a psychological exam, and they have some standard of what needs to be done there. They recommend a polygraph exam. Um, are they, yeah, they recommend or sometimes a departmental mandate a polygraph exam, but a failed test per post doesn't mean you can't hire the person. So there's that issue in there. They will give you some idea of what you have to do in the background. These are the things that you have to do in your background investigation. But here's where, where there's not a lot of guidelines. What questions are you asking in your oral board interviews of your candidates? What kind of things are you doing in your background and investigation to determine their level of emotional intelligence? Because the higher level of a person's emotional intelligence has been shown that they have lower incidence of use of force, less complaints, higher levels of empathy, better problem solving, better de-escalation and down the road. So okay. what you're really trying to screen for is people that have that high level of emotional intelligence, empathy, problem solving, and ability to communicate and engage with others at a high level. There's no standard for that in California or anywhere else. So when I was new and, and went to different agencies and took oral boards, some oral boards, all they wanted to ask you was tactical things. You know, they would ask you things like, when would you shoot this person? Is it okay to shoot this person at this time? Uh, how would you take this person down? You know, and Santa Rosa, their oral board wasn't like that. It was much more around communication, engagement, and it always was even when I left. And some agencies were very heavy into, yeah, no, tell us who you are, why we should hire you, and how you're not going to cause us problems in the future. Right. And other agencies were very tactical and, and more oriented towards 
um, that type of activity, aggressiveness and tactics and things of those nature. Well, post doesn't chime in on which way you have to go and leave California, start going maybe further into the middle or the south of the country. And your standards are going to change significantly as to what they're asking, what they're looking for. Are they even doing backgrounds and psych exams and so on? Are they even required to? I have found agencies that have states that have post, but don't require you. They don't put requirements out for hiring. So the police department can just hire you. You can walk in the door. They can hire you. Um, eventually send you to training, depending on post. Again, they might have up to a year to even put you in a police academy. You could be out working. What is post, so, by the way? <laughs> police officer standards and training. Thank you. Most Just places are sure. called post. Okay. Um, they, they may have some other acronym. That's what we, the most common one is police officer standards and training. They set the standard. Right. That's good so, to know. To answer your question, there needs to be badly a national standard of minimally, you will conduct a background that includes the following. You will conduct a psychological exam that includes the following. Okay. You will, you know, try to measure through your questions and your oral boards and your hiring process. You will try to assess this candidate's ethical, moral, and emotional intelligence levels as best you can and so on. But the more, the more difficulty everyone has finding and hiring police officers, the more they want to ignore these things. Yep. They, we just want to get people in the door. And so to answer your question as best I can is, again, we're lacking a standard across this country that we can rely on. So I know that the quality of law enforcement officer if I want to drive from California to New York and I get stopped in every state I pass, I have no idea what the quality of that hiring was, how well that person is really qualified to do that job and interact with me, or even what to expect in their tactics and approach to me when they walk up to my car. And for a yeah. person that looks like me, that's a scary experience. <laughs> I well, see, you. <laughs> that's, that's actually some of the numbers I'm talking about, because if you look at a lot of what was going on with these units, they had these, you know, these called jump outs where they just, they just see someone that looks suspicious. Yeah. And, you know, there was a hundred thousand arrests in Baltimore during this siege of these lunatics out there. Um, in the, in that, I don't even know what it was. It was a gang force, but gun trace task force, gun trace task force. It was a hundred thousand arrests and, and most, it was 75% black. And, and a lot of those young men, mostly men had, you know, 50, 60 different arrests or 50 different six where they pulled them out and frisked them and looked for their stuff. It was brutal on that front. And that's actually, again, where just my homework over the last week on this specific issue around special tactics and special forces is that it's the same problem that I had when I researched the defund the police issues. It was trying for me as a reporter to understand the difference between <clears throat> a mental health unit like in response or star or cahoots. Those were great. I was like, Oh, that's super cool. That makes sense. We yeah. should have those. And it alleviates the policemen, the police people on their duty, right? They don't have to do these pieces. And then the same thing would stand true with the requirements of screening, pre-screening 
and making sure that people were hiring the right candidates, making sure we're educating the candidates the best that we possibly can. Every single one of these wants is a budgetary issue. Yeah. And that's why I was wondering if the, you know, the federal government doesn't have to be involved in policing or how, what the requirements are, but there should be additional budgets for each major city <laughs> throughout the United States based on this, because we're all suffering. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. and I don't want to say, and, and, and to your point, Nick, black and brown and poor people are suffering even more, right? Yeah. I don't have, I don't get pulled over <laughs> driving my kids yeah. in my SUV, you know, with my yeah. stupid Yeti cup. I mean, they're not pulling yeah. me over, right? I mean, they're just like, oh, white dude in his Yeti cup. He's fine. But the idea there is like, <laughs> how do we get to that point? Because the, it seems to me that we've gotten to an inflection point as a culture that it's what we're doing is not working. Yeah. You know, the police departments yeah. do not have the relationships <clears throat> with the community they need. These special units do not have a reputation that warrants right. more hirings of people like this. And and everything you guys are saying from the institute level, from the academic level, from the strategic level makes 100 percent sense. But the question yeah. then is, how does it get implemented? Yeah, well, first of all, we can't, again, again, you, what you spoke to, Joey, is a societal problem, right? Yeah. We can't solve American policing problems without looking at the culpability, responsibility, and the ownership and the problem that exists in broader society. That's why it's so key for us that we approach this from a community engaged perspective, because the, the community takes, needs to take more responsibility and ownership for public safety. Mm -hmm. And so, it, you know, it's race is is a major issue because it's part of the the roots of of the authoritarian nature of policing. And you know, when we were doing the research to write the qualified immunity paper, remember the qualified immunity for peace officers only applies to the civil situations. But what it takes a look at is an examination of whether or not the police officers were allowed effectively to violate a person's constitutional rights. Right. And so it's a good read for people. I think we wrote that paper in as common enough language as we could for what is a, a legal paper, which can be tough. I get that. But it's worth a, a read because when we were looking at all of the qualified immunities in all of the 12 federal districts, I got to tell you, George, I saw some stuff that was permitted by police that shocked even me that the courts allowed it. So what we need to really understand is that we won't get the change that we need if society stands by and waits for police to change themselves. It's just not going to happen. No, there has to be external intervention. We would love to see the federal government. All they have is financial incentivization. That's all they can do. And that's really they can make all the recommendations that they want and the states can completely ignore it. But what this federal government is typically does says, if you do that, we'll give you this. You know, right. <laughs> it's a trade-off. So what we need to do is make the federal financial support more strategic and more based upon pushing us toward uniform standards, education and training, accountability, you know, and, and laws and the policies and actually truly professionalize American policing. Because right now it's just it's a vocation. It's uh, there's it does not meet the qualification of being a profession, although that's the word that's widely used. And I know up in your hearing of your, among your audience, there'll be police officers who will be very upset that I'm saying this, but it's a fact. It's like a judge in Arizona ruled uh, several months ago. 
There's no evidence to support the fact that American policing is a profession. It's a vocation. But we want to professionalize American policing. And we think we can do that with the support of the federal government, but most importantly, with the cooperation of the states. I love that. And I think that's a great macro solution is to actually just not you know, throwing money at a problem historically is not the only answer. But the, right. the answer here is from what you guys were saying, from what Eric was saying earlier, is that it it is about training education standards. And we need to make sure that we can do that across our country. Eric, do you have any last last things to say about that? Because I really, really appreciate this. You know, we've been going. I mean, we could keep going, but I know. <laughs> probably, I mean, we could. This whole training thing is a whole nother podcast. Uh, yeah, I tell so you, do that later. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, let everyone know because we've talked a lot about. Yeah, what do we think? What have we written? What is our position? I think it's important to understand that. Yes, we do do a lot of research, and we are doing research. We're currently involved in culture level research that's never been done and doesn't exist anywhere right now specifically on policing organizations and their organizational culture. I just wanted to uh, let everyone know that, you know, we put boots on the ground. That's the main part of the uh, of the Institute is working directly, primarily with communities, as Nick said, bringing communities and police together to understand that they're one community. And we will be launching those efforts, and we are right now launching those efforts in three states. So as we say, it really is something we need the states. We have to do it by state. You have to go to 50 states, not 18,000 police departments, (laughs) and go to a state and prove if you do the things that we're talking about, things will improve. These tactics, these engagement strategies, this cultural work, if you do the work, you're going to improve. And by proving that model, that's how we hope to get the states on board to say, yes, we can do that. And if we could do that, then we can, in effect, nationalize our model one state at a time, because I just don't see any other way that we can get this done. And yes, it's a long haul. And yes, it's a big lift. But if if anyone's got a better idea on how to do it, we're we're certainly open to it. We went through a gazillion ideas and we feel this is the best approach for the size of the problem it is. Well, gentlemen, Godspeed on everything you're doing, because I think that there's one thing that our collective body politic will agree upon, which is this is a needed remedy. <laughs> it's yes. hard for us to agree on anything anymore, but everyone agrees that police needs to be reformed. You guys are doing a great job. Keep doing it. And again, I'll, I'll have to bring you back on for another subject, but uh, thanks a lot for your last 90 minutes. I really appreciate your time, boys. Thank you, Thank Joey. You, thanks Joey. for having us. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs. Big hugs.